God's word. Good morning, church. We'll be reading from uh, the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, or you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Amen. Morning. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at SCC. If you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here. You may have noticed we're actually in James uh, chapter 5 today. Now, if you've been with us every week through the series, you probably, especially if you've been paying attention, you've picked up on something, and that is we skipped the first six verses today. I want to walk through you through why. So uh, James 5, 1 through 6, I'm actually going to read the first couple of verses, but this is actually a theme that we've already picked up in the book of James. But I do want to uh, talk briefly about this theme again. So we're going to read... Uh, James 5, 1 and 2. Again, they're not, um, weren't part of this outline, and then we'll talk, um, kind of walk through what Brian just read together. But here's James 5, 1 and 2. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. I mean, somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed, right, before they wrote chapter 5. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify you and eat your flesh like fire. And then he comes to one of the problems. You have hoarded wealth here in the last days. Now, uh, listen, J James here is not railing against wealth. Wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, what James is doing is he's lamenting and speaking against two practices here. He's saying, first of all, uh, it's, it's wrong to hoard your wealth. In other words, you need, if God blesses you with wealth, you need to use the first and best part of that, right, to forward and advance his kingdom. Don't hoard your wealth. That's evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, Jesus looked at a group of wealthy people one time and said, look, to whom much is given, much is required. And then the second thing Jane is lamenting here is wealth that makes promises it doesn't keep. Wealth that, um, that creates itself on the backs of its laborers without paying them wages. In other words, wealth that was gained 
um, through uh, a lack of integrity or character uh, at the expense of somebody else. And I want to prove that wealth is not the issue here. So in a few moments, we're going to talk about Job. You know, Brian read about Job as an example. Job was very, very wealthy. He was a very wealthy man, and we're going to see that very clearly. So it isn't wealth that's the issue, but it's the way you accumulate that wealth that James is uh, lamenting. And then James begins to talk about the attitude that you and I should have uh, as followers of Jesus when we bump up against a broken world, when we experience things like hardship and adversity in this world. He says that we should endure those things patiently, patiently. Uh, Now, the reality for all of us is we're going to spend large chunks of our time waiting for something. I mean, just this week, I sat down, thought about what it was like when I was a kid, some things I had to wait patiently for, or some things I couldn't wait for. So, for example, when I was in school, I couldn't wait for summer. By the end of summer, I couldn't wait to get back to school, right? Then I couldn't wait to fall in love, and I couldn't wait to get married, and then I couldn't wait to buy my first home. I was actually fine waiting for children, but you get the idea, right? You understand what I'm saying. In fact, in our culture, we are absolutely terrible at waiting. We'll buy anything that promises us to help us hurry. In fact, let me just spend a few minutes proving this. Americans eat a kind of food in overwhelming amounts, right? Not cheap food, not even good food. What kind of food do we buy? fast food, right? And we eat it because it's fast. But even with fast food, right? People had to get out of their cars. They had to go inside. They had to order. They had to find a table. So to make fast food even faster, we invented drive through right? So that people could eat in their vans as God intended. Amen. Amen. Think about it this way. We mail packages through Federal Express, take out cell phone plans through Sprint, get gases, or get gas, not gases, excuse me, get gas at places called Speedway, and we swim in trunks called Speedos. In fact, if you do that, please stop, okay? Because there are just some things in life that we don't want to see or certainly unsee. But the point I'm making is this. We're infatuated with speed in our culture. Waiting, well, not so much. So here's the question for you this morning. What are you waiting on to make you happy? What are you waiting on? Maybe it's healing or some hope in your marriage. Maybe you're waiting on a wayward child that you desperately want to come back to Christ. Maybe you're waiting for a child you desperately want to conceive and you just have not been able to do that. Maybe you're waiting on provision in your finances. Maybe you're waiting on a job. Others are waiting for a mate. Some of us are waiting on better health. And here's what's so powerful. We may think that we're waiting for a maid or a job or a marriage to get better, but friends, what we're really waiting on is God. And whether you believe in God or not, that is who and what you are really waiting on. And I want to point out this morning that waiting is active, it is not passive. 
Waiting is work. Waiting is effort. Waiting means that we are actively asking, actively trusting, and actively surrendering our will to God's while we are waiting. So waiting actively hopes, it actively prays, and it actively trusts. And I'm just going to give you our outline for this morning right out of the gate. Here's what James is going to say to us in verses 7 through 12. He's going to say, look, be patient. The Lord is coming back for you. It won't always be this hard. He's going to say, be patient because God is accomplishing something in you. He is doing a good work in you in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your difficulty. And then he's going to say, look, I want you to be patient with other people for the same reason. God is doing a, a good work in them as well. And then he's going to say, I want you to be patient because all God's promises to you are true. God has never broken a promise to you. And then finally, he's going to say, look, in your hardship, when you suffer, when things get difficult, don't blow other people off. Keep your crew that together, starting in James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Just stop there. For thousands of years, Christians have waited expectantly in, in for the hopeful return of our Jesus. He is coming back. And what that means is that for the Christian, history is linear. It is moving towards something. It is uh, moving toward the fulfillment in which Christ will come back for his bride. Uh, when our kids were little, sometimes, you know, they would find themselves uh, in a bit of a pickle, maybe get themselves into trouble. I remember one time years ago, my son Connor was really, really little at this time. I was uh, watching him and working on something at the same time. And uh, he started to kind of climb a fence, our fence in our yard. And I kind of noticed he was getting kind of precarious and getting stuck. And then he realized he was getting stuck. And then he got afraid. And so he cried out, right? So I, I come over little thing I help him off the fence I set him down I brush him off he's fine and it's a small illustration to illustrate a really really big truth God what James is saying is look your your dad is coming back for you He's going to come back, and when he does, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to cure everything that ails you. So wait patiently in the meantime. Dad's not going to leave you stranded on a fence forever. He is going to come back for you, right? Kind of another when our children were small story. Uh, so we were, we were fortunate to get to take some vacations while our kids were gr growing up. We've talked about the questions kids ask in the car on the way there and back. We wouldn't be out of the driveway five minutes and we'd hear, are we there yet? Some of you as parents have probably heard the same thing. And we would say, no, we're not there yet. We just pulled out of the driveway. We got like 12 hours to go. Be patient, be patient, right? That's what James is saying. He's just saying, look, your, your dad's coming back. The ride is going to be short. It's going to be much shorter than you think. So be patient in that, right? And then the second thing that James is going to say in the second part of verse 7, he's going to say, I want you to be patient, not just because the Lord's coming back for you, but because God is accomplishing something good in you. 
Look what he says. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? Underline the word valuable. What he's saying is what he's getting at is God is doing the work he's doing in you during a season of trials. It's valuable. It's a crop. The seed that God is sowing in your life is going to bear good fruit, a good harvest, a good crop. If you act like the farmer and you don't give up, that's what he's really saying. As sure as a farmer sows seed that he knows will produce a crop and how patient that farmer is, you can count on God to use the, this set of circumstances, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, to grow good fruit in your life. Here's what James is really getting at. He's saying, look, your heavenly Father is using the circumstances that are hardest in your life right now to help you to look more and more and more like his son. And that means something huge. That means that, because some of us are here and every time we endure something hard, we think, well, you know, God's punishing me. No, God is not punishing you. God already punished his son Jesus. God already poured out his wrath on his son Jesus. So there's none left for you. On the contrary, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. What if the trials, hardships, difficulties that you and I endure aren't proof of the punishment of God, but of the love of God. What if that's a mercy in your life and mine to make us more like his son? See? And then look at verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you too will be judged. And then, ominous, the judge is standing at the door. So what James is saying is he's saying, look, I want you to remember that not only is God working in you, but especially if you're a follower of Jesus, remember that other people are works in progress too. They're not finished products either. And in the same way that you can trust that God is working in you, you can trust that God is working in them because God has promised to work in every man, woman, or child that would call himself a follower of Jesus. And that means that we're in varying stages of growth and development, varying places in our journey with Christ. But never forget, he would say, that God is working in other people in exactly the same way that he is working in, in you. And then something else here. Anybody ever notice that when you get a little uncomfortable or tired or we, we kind of get a little irritable with one another? Maybe probably not in your house, but and at least in somebody's house that you know, that's the case. And in fact, I can prove it. So for example, if someone has missed a meal and they get a little irritated, what do we call them? Yeah, we call them hangry right? So James is recognizing that when people are going through really hard stuff, it's easy for them to get cranky. Let me give you another one. When somebody hasn't gotten a good night's sleep and they are irritable with others, we call them what? Spouses. We call them spouses. I know. I know. You're welcome. And then James says, look, the judge, he's standing at the door. He's standing at the door. Here's his argument. I want you to remember something. There's only one judge. None of us 
are capable of judging one another. Only Jesus, because only Jesus takes into account heart and motives and circumstances and all the things that need to be taken into account when a sentence is going to be passed, right? Only Jesus does that. And he says, look, the true judge, the real judge, he's standing at the door. Like, he's here and he's watching. And then look at verse 10. James is going to tell us here, look, I want you to be patient because every one of God's promises to you are true. God has not broken one promise to you in your suffering. Look how he says it. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's saying, look at the prophets. We applaud them because of their perseverance. We consider them blessed because they persevered. Let's just think about one prophet for a minute. How about the prophet Jeremiah? The prophet Jeremiah preached for 40 years. Do you know how many people's minds he changed in 40 years? Do you know how many converts he had in 40 years of preaching? That is a lifetime of preaching. That's 10 more years of preaching than I've had. And I feel like I've been at this a long, long time. Do you know how many minds he changed? Exactly zero. He had no converts no changed minds. Nobody repented. In fact, they treated Jeremiah's preaching with contempt. They did things like dig holes and throw him in the hole. That was what Jeremiah got for his preaching. And so he, when he says, look, he persevered under that. He kept preaching, even though it seemed that nobody was listening. That's what he's commending. And then look at verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Some of you needed to hear just that sentence today. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, why did he go to Job as an example well, it's because Job played in the Super Bowl of suffering. And he didn't suffer because of wrongdoing. He suffered because he lived a good life. He did. He suffered for that. So the book of Job, chapter 1, opens... So what you have in the book of Job is you, you have a scene in heaven, and then you have a scene on earth, and then you have a scene in heaven, and then you have a scene on earth. And in many ways, that mimics our lives. We know about our lives here on earth, but what we're always blind to is the scene that happens in heaven in our lives. But in the book of Job, we get a gift. We get to see that. And, and here's what we see in Job chapter 1. So God actually describes Job in Job chapter 1 as blameless and upright, as a man who shuns evil and fears him. But the accuser, or uh, whom we might call Satan, says, well, and this is a conversation taking place between God and Satan in the heavenly realms. And the accuser goes, well, of course Job praises you. Of course he fears you. Of course he loves you. You've done nothing but bless him. Over, I mean, he's wealthy. He's got lots of kids. You've given him everything he could want. You've done nothing but give. Of course he praises you. But if you let me go 
and take all the things you've given Job one by one, he will curse your name. So mankind is on trial here. Do we love God just for the toys that he gives us? Or do we really love him? So, so over a period of time, Satan comes down. He takes everything from Job one by one. All seven of Job's children die. All of his wealth just vanishes. All of his uh, uh, crops, all of his livestock uh, just wilts and dies. And the only thing he's left with is his wife, which is not necessarily a good thing. And we're going to talk about the why of that in a minute. And so what does Job do? When everything in his life gets stripped away, well, the Bible says Job tears his clothes. That's an act of remorse and repentance. He gets in sackcloth and ashes, and he says these words, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he said, I'm going to praise God when he gives me stuff, and I'm going to praise God when he takes stuff away. But either way, I'm going to praise God. And then the scene switches. Uh, mankind passes this first test, right? We're back in heaven. And so God and the accuser are having a second conversation. Job's lost everything. He still praises God. So the accuser says, well, God, he's, still, he's only praising you because he still has his help. Let me take his health. Let me make, let me give him a, a painful physical ailment. And I guarantee you, he will curse your name. So God says, okay, you can take his health, but you're not allowed to kill him. You're not allowed to permanently injure him. And a couple things I want us to notice. First, the accuser has to ask God for permission. And then secondly, that God, even when he grants permission, gives parameters. He limits what the enemy can do. So the Bible tells us Satan goes back down to earth and he... Uh, uh, and, and Job gets from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He breaks out in painful boils, painful sores. And his wife, who has also lost everything, gone through the, all the same things that Job has gone to. She looks at Job. He's in sackcloth. He's in ashes. He's holding a clay pot. He's scraping infected skin off of his arms and legs. He's in immense pain. And she looks at him with great empathy, not. And she looks at Job and with contempt, she says to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And here's what's so powerful about that story. That story tells me that you can have two people that endure the exact same trial. One of those people is going to get better, and the other one's just going to get bitter. And so here's the question for you. Are you more like Job, or are you more like his wife? Who are you more like? Because we all get a choice how we're going to respond 
when we suffer, right? And so why Job again? I mentioned earlier, he was in the Super Bowl of suffering, sure. But at one point, James says, look, you know how his story turned out. Now, we just talked about how his story began. Not only did James readers know the first five chapters of Job, they also knew the last five chapters of Job. So they knew that once Job endured all of that, God was merciful. He was compassionate. He was generous once again with Job. He restored to Job everything that he had lost except his wife, which is kind of a bummer, right? He had to keep her. God just restores it all. And then James makes this promise. He says, he says, as he meditates on the ending of that story, he says, look, God is compassionate. God is merciful. He will restore. See, so what, what James is saying to us is, look at Job. He lost everything. He was in the Super Bowl of suffering. But at the end of the story, God was good to him. Don't you think God will be good to you at the end of the story, just like he was to Job? He gives mercy in suffering. Now listen, I know we have loss in this room. I know we have struggle in this room. We have difficulty in this room. But I don't know anyone who's ever lost seven children, lost everything they had, ended up homeless uh, in, with a very, very painful disease. And that is why Job is the illustration because no one has a trump card over Job. That is not until our Jesus because our Jesus suffered abandonment, abandonment by God in a way that none of us will ever have to do. He suffered in ways that most human beings will never have to suffer. And he didn't do it randomly. He did it intentionally. He did it purposefully for you and for me. Here's how the Bible describes it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died to bring me, a wayward human being, into fellowship with God. And he died for you to do that too. And we're going to come back to why that's so important. So look, I don't know what you're going through. I don't. But the point is, our Jesus does. And because he has suffered in ways that you and I will never have to, he knows how to bring you comfort in those times. In other words, James is saying, look, God has not broken a single promise to you. All of God's promises are true. In fact, look at a promise Jesus made in John 16. He's talking to his disciples. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why does he want them to have peace? Because in this world you will have trouble. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world where life gets hard and life is not unfair. But James would say, don't confuse God with life. Your life may be unfair from time to time, but God is never unfair. The Bible does not promise a life of ease or a life free from pain. But what Jesus does promise is to be with us through that. In fact, look what he says, but take heart. I've, I've overcome the world. Now, here's the crazy thing about the world we live in. Even children understand life 
in a foreign world. Uh, years ago, a woman um, wrote a book called The All Better Book. And what she did is she uh, just asked all kinds of hard questions about our world and interviewed hundreds of children to see how they would answer some of life's biggest problems in a broken world. So I'm just going to kind of read through a few of the questions and read you the way some of these children responded. So here was the first question. What can men and women do to get along better? Chris, age nine, said, well, girls like to stay clean and healthy and brush their teeth and boys don't care. Uh, Jennifer, age eight, said, they should just understand that women are more mature than men. And then finally, Mark, age nine, said, we should just keep them far away from each other with a really big fence. <laughs> How about this one? People, people always say life's not fair. What's not fair about it? It's not fair, Michelle age eight said, that my cat gets to go outside and I have to stay in the house. Annie age eight said, it's not fair that friends go away and they're hard to keep. Here's another one. The government is sort of broke. How can it raise money? Brian age nine said, well, the president should get a job, first of all. <laughs> Uh, Jennifer, age nine, said the government could have a bake sale. There's a thought, right? All right, here's another question. How would you take care of someone who's sick and isn't going to get better? Again, life in a fallen world. Well, Noel, age eight, said, I would let them have their pet in bed with them, and I would make medicine that tastes good. Ashley, age eight, said, I would let them lie down in bed and I would whisper really light so they wouldn't get a headache. Yeah, we're going to skip, we're going to do this. I'll just give you one answer for this one. How would you make people feel better about themselves? Caitlin, age nine, said this. She said, well, if they don't feel like they're pretty, you could say, well, you're a lot prettier than a person I know who has big bulgy eyes, right? <laughs> and then finally... With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? And Matt, age eight, said, well, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. And then finally, Brian, age eight, said this, well, sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes when I think no one loves me, I do one of those things. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. Well, I thank God that our Jesus has. And we'll come back to that in just a minute, right? So, uh, and so th then James, what he's going to do is he's going to kind of circle back and I just want to read a promise to you that's so incredible. And I believe some of you are here just for this promise today. Some of you needed to hear the words we're about to say. This is a, an ancient promise that God has made to you. It's found in the book of Isaiah. And I just want you to think, what's hardest in your life right now? And let God speak into that. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. I mean, even youths, even young men grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Some of you are here, and this is the reason God brought you to church today. You needed to hear those words. And then he circles back, James does, about being patient with one another, but again with a nuance. He says, look, don't use your hardship as an excuse not to love and honor other people. Here's how he says it in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, why does James say that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we live, we live in a world where things come up and we live in a world where people make promises that they do not keep to one another. And here's what's so interesting. When things can come up in our lives, maybe this is just me, but I'm betting some of you can relate to this. It's almost like when we're in a hard season, we can think, you know, life is so hard for me right now. I'm just going to check out from everyone and everything else. I'm going to hold myself up in my little house, and I'm just going to pretend that nobody else out there is hurting and suffering. So if I made an appointment with somebody, I can cancel that appointment. If I made a promise to somebody because my life is so hard, I can just bail on that promise. That's what he's getting at, see? And so he says, look, don't do that. Don't think for a minute that your season of hardship gives you a pass from getting your hands dirty in the lives of other people. You're still called to love, you're still called to encourage. You're still called to make a difference in this world, even when life in this world can be hard on you. You don't get a pass. You still have to keep your promises. And then he just says, look, be truthful with one another. Now, why is that so important? Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, we said again and again, Relationship, in the kingdom of God, relationships matter more than anything else. James has said it throughout the book of James. In the community of faith, nothing matters more than relationships. And when we lie to one another, lying undermines relationships. That's what makes it wrong. It's damaging to relationships. Because when we lie to one another, then we fail to, tr we can't trust one another. And if we can't trust one another, then we really can't love one another. So the next time your child asks you why lying is wrong, tell them. Because lying breaks relationships. It's hard on relationships. And God loves relationships where people love each other. Now, listen, so here's the deal. 
Here's what James would just say to us by way of reminder. He would say, look, whatever your struggle is, be patient in it. Be patient because God's coming back for you. Be patient because God's doing a good work in you. Be patient because God's doing that same work in other people. Be patient because God's promises are true. He hasn't broken one promise he's made to you. And then finally, I want you to be patient. I don't want you to think that in your suffering, in your hardship, you get a pass on relationships or other people. And, and so he would just say, look, finally, as you suffer, just remember, God's promises are true. Now, listen, anytime something bad comes into our life, there's a temptation we all face. And that's the temptation to go, man, why is God, like, why is God punishing me? Why, is, why doesn't God love me? If he loved me, my life would be better right? And this is why I just want to remind you one more time. Remember, we talked a few minutes ago about the suffering of Jesus. No matter what blows into your life, no matter what hardship comes into view, we have to filter everything that comes into our life through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of what Jesus has done. In other words, when we're tempted to believe, well, God doesn't care. God took his eyes off the ball. God isn't looking at me. God isn't interested in my life. God has forsaken me. Whatever the lie is that you're tempted to believe, you want to take that lie and you want to bend it and submit it to the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel says none of that is true. The gospel says he poured out his wrath on Jesus so you wouldn't be punished for your sin. Jesus was punished for your sin. The gospel said Jesus suffered, right, so that you could do life with God. And the gospel says that Jesus gave his life because he loves you. So when you're in a season where it's difficult and hard and you're tempted to believe, well, God doesn't care. No, go back to the gospel. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? So here's what I want to do. I don't know everything in your life. I just want to pray for you. And as I'm praying for you, I just want you to kind of think about, lift up to God with me the hardest thing in your life right now, the thing that is just carrying the most weight. And I'm going to ask for God to take that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for every family here. I don't know what they're going through, but you do. I pray for every individual here. I don't know what carries the most weight in their mind, God, but you do. And so, God, I just ask you to meet us in that. I ask you to see us through. I ask you to give courage where courage is needed. I ask you to give comfort where comfort is needed. I ask you to give strength where strength is needed. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to give forgiveness where forgiveness is needed. Whatever, I, God, I ask you to give wisdom where wisdom is needed. And God, I ask for the wisdom for every man and woman in this room to be able to put the weight of their trial on your shoulders, knowing that your shoulders are far more capable than theirs. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know...